right, welcome back to Sports Talk. Doug Miles and Don Henderson with you as we come to you on a Monday night. And a great pleasure, Don, as we welcome really one of the great strikeout artists in baseball. He's had a tremendous uh, career and a very interesting story as well. He's uh, done a lot with his life since he's left baseball, helping a lot of people get into that. But uh, we're talking about Sudden Sam McDowell, and he's written a new book called The Saga of Sudden Sam. And uh, Sam joined us for a few minutes uh, to talk uh, about uh, the book and uh, what he's been doing lately. And Sam, a great pleasure to have you with us. How are you? Thank you. It's good to be here. Sam, I'll say uh, you uh, you had a very, very unusual career. And when you wrote this book, uh, you really uh, uncovered everything. That uh, You certainly gave everybody an opportunity to see some of the sides of Sam McDowell that they never would have known happened. Well, yeah. Uh, when I did eventually sit down to uh, actually put the book together, I wanted to make certain that it was one that I thought would be beneficial and helpful to uh, people instead of the usual sports book or baseball book or uh, something just to glorify me uh, or, you know, to sensationalize uh, my life. Uh, I just wanted it to be a beneficial book. So it took me quite a while, obviously, over 50 years uh, from the very first time that the first sports writer uh, called me and wanted to do a book uh, to today. Sam, I had a chance to, to read through it, and, and uh, I, I, I have to say, I wish I was around when you came in the league because I, I didn't get to see you with the Indians, but I did see you later on with the Yankees, uh, early 70s when you came to them. So, uh, And I've, get, of course, seen many film and uh, tape of you online that you can find, but uh, good, ple- good uh, great pleasure to talk to you. And let's start with the baseball end, and we'll get into uh, uh, what you've been doing uh, since then, uh, again, helping yourself and, and helping many people. But uh, I was surprised to know, uh, just reading through the book, you started uh, right here in St. Pete, a little bit north of us uh, in your minor league career, right? In the Florida State League. Well, it was in Lakeland, Florida. Lakeland, okay. Uh, yeah, back in the uh, Florida State League, that's when they had D-ball. Uh, and uh, that was one of the criteria that was set down by my father, who said that no matter where uh, I was to sign with baseball, whatever team it was, they wanted me to start at the bottom and to work myself up like anybody else uh, just to help me better in my career. And so that's what happened. Uh, the day after I, uh, two day, a couple of days after I graduated from high school at 17, uh, I was on my way to Lakeland, Florida. Then, interesting, uh, from going from the outset, uh, and you talked about uh, your insecurities at times, things that happened to you along the way. Uh, the problems that you faced and addressed and have really changed your life. Uh, it's hard for the normal person to say, here's a young fellow with this kind of talent that's going to walk into Major League Baseball and he's going to have insecurities. That, that's very hard to understand. Well, first and foremost, that happens with an awful lot of people in our society today, irrespective of having talent or not having talent. But in my particular case, I was totally unaware uh, of what comes about with a disease known as addiction. I had no idea. Back in those days, it was genetic. I had no idea what it did to the human being, the mind, uh, for an individual. And and irrespective of whatever talent you think you have, uh, you ain't going to beat it. Uh, I don't care who you are. 
And obviously back in those days, they thought it was some sort of a weakness or character flaw uh, because there wasn't really much research done. Right. But of course, of course, today, we all know and understand what it does to the human being, what it does to the brain, and that it's a full genetic 100% uh, disease. And again, the culture of, and the culture too, not only just of sports, but kind of that time and, uh, you know, years before that as well, uh, after a ball game, uh, you know, you, you may have a beer or two and then maybe go out to have dinner and, and you have a drink or two there. And it kind of starts that way, doesn't it, Sam? I mean, uh, uh, you even talk about in the book, you know, you weren't aware that you had this problem, obviously, till uh, it developed into something you really needed help with later on. Well, I think maybe the very first day that I took a drink, I think that kind of explains it all as to the disease of alcoholism because I was an obsessive compulsive and throughout my entire life, obviously I overdid everything, went to the extremes, uh, but I never took a drink uh, all throughout uh, high school and so on, uh, but I did it not because I thought it was wonderful or a good thing to do, but it was for me to get attention because I was different than the groups I was around and I wanted to be different and I wanted to get attention. And so therefore uh, I refused to drink like after a football game that we played or baseball or basketball, since I played all the sports on the weekend when the game was over with, we would all go and have a beer or two. And I didn't, I would have soda pop or what have you. Then when I got, into professional baseball uh, in 1960. For the next three years, including in the major leagues, I didn't drink. Mm -hmm. uh, I made certain that uh, I had the right vitamins in me, right minerals, and so on. In fact, I went to the extremes of having doctors take blood tests to make sure I wasn't missing any vitamins and all that stuff. And then, lo and behold, I pitched a good game in Chicago. And back then, you were ostracized when you came up to the big leagues uh, until you earned your way onto the team. And so I, relatively speaking, didn't have any friends, uh, uh, didn't really go out with anybody or do anything. And here I am in Chicago, pitched a good game, and two of my teammates asked me to go out to dinner with them. And I thought that was the greatest thing since sliced bread. <laughs> so I went out to dinner with them, and uh, the one of them, uh, Gary Bell ordered a scotch on the rocks. So did I. Barry Latman uh, ordered a pink lady. So did I. And uh, they both had two drinks and then ate dinner and went on back to the hotel to go to bed, but not me. Mm. I went up uh, Rush Street in Chicago and stopped at every bar on the way and got drunk out of my mind and was able to ultimately find at four o'clock in the morning, uh, the hotel, uh, to go pass out. That was my first experience. Yeah. What in, in a lot of cases is so for an alcoholic. And you have, the book is filled with these, obviously, uh, you know, sad stories when you look back on it, but obviously it's something, you know, you, you went through and you, and you're very honest about it. And, and it took a long time for you to finally come to grips with uh, doing something about it. But uh, somehow along the way, you, you were still able to pitch uh, effectively. 
I guess taking care of yourself in the other way with the vitamins and all that uh, must have cleaned your body out enough where you could pitch uh, every fourth or fifth day, right? Yeah, it, it, relatively speaking, I thought that it was going to clean me out and I would be normal or up to whatever I needed to be in order to pitch. I was basically uh, a controlled drunk back then mm. to the point where uh, the day that I pitched the game, after the game was over, I would go out and get drunk. Uh, the next day, I'd come to the ballpark, work my butt off, thinking I'm sweating it out. Then after the game, I'd go get drunk. And then for the next two days, I wouldn't drink anything that was alcoholic or take a pill or anything. I would work my butt off and sweat it out, thinking I was okay. And yet I had no concept back then of the effect it had on you mentally. Right. Um, which uh, really was basically to my demise. Sam McDowell is our special guest this evening, and we welcome Sam. And what a great story, a human story, talking about so many things that happened to him, becoming a superstar at 17 years of age and moving up through the, the ranks in Major League Baseball. Uh, two things, uh, Sam, that I would bring uh, to your attention. The first person I ever remember addressing this uh, was Don Newcomb. Uh, I know that he worked with the Dodger organization. Maybe he still does. I don't know. Uh, but he was the first one that uh, addressed the fact that drinking became a major problem for him. And uh, he, uh, he addressed it straight on. And he then became a sort of a counselor for the Dodgers and the organization. And the other big story, of course, was C.C. Zavatia, who did a lot of things that you're saying. He would pitch, and then he would drink and drink and drink, and then he would take. You know, next day he wouldn't. And he'd be, you know, ready to go uh, on the fourth or fifth day. Uh, there are two pitchers that come to mind quickly. Uh, have you ever had any dealings with either one of them or talked to them? Yes, I've talked with both of them. Uh, both of them, I was very good friends with. Uh, uh, I uh, also with Ryan Doran. Uh, back in the day, All right. right, was similar, and uh, in fact, because of Don Newcomb, you might say, in a way, uh, that was one of the reasons why I started a special program for the Commissioner of Baseball. Uh, unwittingly, you might say, or unwillingly, uh, in the beginning, uh, but yes, I was friends with all three of them and had. Uh, uh, talk to all freedom. And again, you tell your story in the book again, called the saga of sudden Sam as all addicts, uh, whether it's drugs or alcohol, or whatever, you, you eventually have to hit a bottom of some sort, your bottom to be able to finally realize you got to climb your way back and, and start the healing process. And, and you talk about that ele very eloquently in the book, but, uh, if you want to talk a little about that, that's fine. But I, we want to give the audience, uh, you know, let them know that you were really one of the few, pe first people that started the baseball assistance team, right? You talked a little bit about just now about uh, uh, putting a program together with the commissioner called BAT, B-A-T, baseball assistance team, which helps uh, former players. And one of those players was another man who went through a similar situation to you, uh, Bernie Carbo. Well, yeah, that's that's the uh, situation that occurred. Uh, but to back up just a little bit, uh, I've gone through my own recovery. Uh, through a rehab and then with counselors. And I was fortunate to be a very close friend with uh, Dr. Uh, Tversky, Dave Tversky, who's probably the foremost authority in the world 
on alcoholism and drug addiction. He was a psychiatrist and an ordained rabbi. Uh, but to make this very short, uh, after I came out, I wanted to know why. Uh, why did this occur with a young man, a Christian, uh, grew up in a very religious family, and so on? How could this happen? And basically, he would coerce me into saying, well, you need to go over here to the Pitt Library and read this book. You need to go over to Duquesne and enroll in this psych course and then that psych course. And then I eventually go to Harvard Medical School to their uh, continuing education and so on. And finally, he said, Sam, you know, all these people are coming to you for help. Not me. You need help. And I kept telling him. I don't want to become a counselor because there's no money in it, and I still enjoyed money. And I know that <laughs> the therapists and counselors that you see today, they're so dedicated, they really don't make that much money. But they work 24 hours a day trying to save people's lives. Right. Uh, and he said, well, he said, sooner or later, you have to make that decision, uh, which I did. And, in fact, I started the first EAP program in the history of sports in 1981 with the Texas Rangers. And I was an EAP and a licensed therapist. Uh, and uh, I went about my merry way helping the Texas Rangers and eventually Toronto and Chicago and Pittsburgh. And during one of these days, I get a call, emergency call from Joe Garagiola, uh, senior, who had called and asked me if I knew how to help an individual that was in the middle of committing suicide. And I told him I was, I was trained and licensed. And he said, well, we have a player that's in the middle of trying to commit suicide right now. Can you help? I said, get me his phone number if he's on the phone. And they did. And I talked to him, talked him down, stabilized him. And they got professional help for him. And by the way, he's an ordained minister working with children in trouble today. And as you mentioned, his name is Bernie Carbo, right. the great player uh, for Boston then in the World Series. Well, six months later, uh, the same thing happened with another player. And I was asked if I could step in and help the player. And I stabilized him, calmed him down. He was on the 11th floor of a, of a hotel in Las Vegas, just been told that he had terminal cancer and he didn't want to live anymore. And so I was able to stabilize him, knock him down. And we got his professional help and he went on for the next seven years. <laughs> and live peacefully, uh, and I'll say semi-happily, um, because he had a lot of fun and he enjoyed his last seven years with his family and his grandchildren and so on. Well, during that time, the commissioner kept telling me that I had to work for him, uh, that they needed my help, and I told him I couldn't. I don't have the time, and I've got too many other people uh, that I'm working with to try and help. And this went on for like three or four times, and then finally, I said, look, I'll, I'll go to your board of directors meeting, bring you a list of people that can help you. And I said, they're all licensed, they're all certified. And I said, I'll train them in understanding the game of baseball and the athlete. And then you have your own purpose. They said, okay, bring us a list. So I did. And in front of 22 Hall of Famers <laughs> that were sitting at the table who were at that time the board of directors for this program they were trying to start, he tears up the list and said, you're working for us. <laughs> and I then said, well, I'll volunteer for one year. <laughs> <laughs> and I was with him for 40 years. 
<laughs> well, you know, you hear so many stories, especially, as you know, I, I grew up in the New York area, so did Doug. And, uh, you know, you knew the Mantle, you knew the, the Billy Martin. I mean, you, you knew that uh, the, the, the Sword Club and all the rest it was so, such a big part of their lives. And everybody liked to read about it in newspapers. But in the end, it killed them both. Yes. Uh, tragically, it, uh, remember back in our day, it was play hard, drink hard. In fact, the more that you drank, the harder that you drank and the better you played, the more you were respected and held in high esteem. And, uh, nobody epitomized it more than Mickey Mantle. And, uh, that's the way it used to be just based on our own ignorance, uh, that you really don't see today. Mm. Sam, I was going to say, without giving up any anonymity, of course, but uh, in the game today, I mean, uh, uh, is the is the problem still as prevalent as when you played? Do you think is it less, or w- w- what do you see in the game today? Oh, it's it's far less. Yeah, uh, I will say this: that although very slowly, and uh, you might say they went down fighting, uh, baseball has come around basically through educational programs uh, that have been forcibly put on all the teams, uh, that every team has an EAP, every team has a counselor and a psychologist now, uh, which was one of my uh, stalwarts, you might say, uh, with the players back then. Uh, But today you don't see, uh, in fact, I know uh, working with Toronto and uh, uh, Toronto, uh, Toronto and uh, Texas for 18 years. Uh, most people would have been shocked because very few players drank. Uh, almost nobody smoked, whereas back in our day, everybody smoked. Uh, and very seldom do you see guys going out and really getting snookered like uh, we used to do. Mm. And then all I think is based on the educational programs that baseball put in and of course you had the severe drug problem back in the 80s uh, where ball players were experimenting and and uh, playing around with all that stuff which you really don't see that much today uh, there were the steroids and even today in some cases you'll see a few individuals try and get away with that but sooner or later they get caught yeah. one way or another either by the testing systems that they have, or simply by their play uh, going downhill and they're gone. Uh, the program right now, the bat program is for the retired ball player or uh, baseball family member because they help everybody, umpires, right. uh, uh, front office personnel, minor leaguers, wives, children, family members with any problem that they have, not just drug and alcohol abuse, but financial or uh, medical and so on. And that was our job to try and help, you know, the former player or baseball member. Uh, although I've been retired now for three years, my son, who is a psychologist, who used to pitch in a pirate organization, has taken over. And because he is a full uh, role psychologist, that program has expanded exponentially uh, to really open up and help uh, uh, all kinds of people from all over the world. Oh, great, great. 
Don, well, I'll let you, you verify what you're saying. And, and, uh, and I worked with the Phillies for 30 years, more than 30 years. But anyway, because I'm, I'm going to be 88 in another couple of weeks. But, uh, you know, the, the locker room was always wide open after the game was over with beer and everything else. And uh, then, of course, they had the problem up in Boston at Fenway Park with the Red Sox. And that was really uh, what turned the corner, Sam, as far as uh, the ball club saying, hey, we got to pull back on this. We're, uh, we're creating a problem for ourselves that we don't need. Well, I think, yeah, uh, to a large extent, I, I believe you're correct. Uh, but I think almost all teams, uh, finally, through educational processes, uh, finally realized, you know, that it's not funny anymore. Uh, the knocked on, drag out drunk uh, wasn't exactly colorful anymore right. like he used to be. And the same way with drugs and so on. And uh, baseball uh, had learned its lesson the hard way. I know it cost them an awful lot in the beginning, but uh, I have to be very proud of what's going on with them now because I know that other organizations, football, basketball, hockey, I know they contacted me numerous times. I know they contacted Eric, who's the director of the program now in New York, to try and help them come up with some sort of a program like we have. Doug? That's great, yeah. Again, uh, the book is called The Saga of Sudden Sam. Sam McDowell has uh, been our guest, and I just want to let the audience know, if you weren't around to see Sam pitch, check out his stats. I mean, uh, over 2,500 strikeouts in his career, and Sudden Sam was the uh, apt name because that ball came in there as uh, fast as anybody. I think even you talk about in the book, uh, Sam, Mickey Mantle didn't want anything to do with you, right? (laughs) (laughs) Don, I'll let you wrap it up. Well, I'll tell you, I, I just uh, find it so interesting that uh, going through uh, one last question for me, Sam, is uh, with so much controversy about the game as it's played today, uh, just some of your thoughts about the transition to where we are right now, because uh, a lot of older people like myself uh, don't really understand the game that we're playing now. Uh, some of your thoughts, you were there, you played, you did it, you, you, you're basically a little bit younger than I am, but uh, what, what are your thoughts about this game that we're trying? It was one of the most beautiful games in the world. Well, you're, you're quite, quite right. I, uh, I find it very sad myself uh, with the way that they're playing the game today. But basically, there's no alternative. Uh, back in the day in the 80s, when they started to change uh, some of the rules and some of the regulations and change the strike zone, and change how they approach the game today. You know, back in the day, you had tremendous uh, fans that had studied the science of the game, that knew every player's history, knew every player's statistic. Uh, when you had that one to nothing game, uh, whether it be called Billy Ball or uh, what have you, where you work for that hit and run, you work for that one run, uh, and you're on the, on the edge of your seat, uh, Why, Whitey Herzog baseball. Yeah, Whitey Herzog, Elvin Dark, uh, uh, all kind of managers back in the day because uh, you had to uh, work for that one run to try and win the game. And that has totally changed because of the fans. Uh, we've lost an awful lot of the real aficionados, the real uh, fanatical fan, the one that knew the game today. 
uh, you know, you want to go to the ball game and uh, have a little bit of sushi, a glass of wine, and sit there and watch, you know, three, four home runs with the fireworks and leave the sixth inning and go on home. Uh, <laughs> totally different game. Doug, close us out. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Sam. I mean, and Don and I talk about it a lot. Just you don't see the stolen base hardly anymore, the hit and the run, the bunt. Uh, all those kind of things. Uh, even pitching. Every pitcher tries to throw every pitch through a brick wall as opposed to the art of pitching. I mean, you threw hard, obviously, but every pitch wasn't trying to throw a brick wall. You, you move the ball around a lot. You don't see that from pitchers anymore, on, on for the most part. One, one last comment, Sam, before I get out of here, and that is that I go back, uh, uh, let's go back to the 1980 World Series between the Yankees and the, Padre, and the Pirates. And they played it in two hours and 37 minutes. It was a 9-7 game. Everybody remembers uh, Mazeroski's oh, home run over yeah, Yogi right. Ted in left field at Forbes Field in Pittsburgh. But uh, they scored, uh, you know, was, uh, uh, not, was it 9-8 or 9-7? I may be incorrect. It was 9-something. But anyway, they played it two hours, 37 minutes. And uh, in the game, there was not one strikeout. Now you see, <laughs> you see more strikeouts in the game then nothing happens. Well, I hate to say it, but the big problem there is that the agent is really in control of the players now. And I've had the opportunity to speak to a couple of the agents. Uh, and it just blows my mind how they train their ball players to swing for the fences, that there's no such thing as hit and run or bunting or stealing a base hardly anymore because there's no money in it. And that's what they tell. That's what they tell their players. And when you look back, uh, you talk about trying to uh, pitch and throw the ball through the wall. I wish everybody could have had the opportunity to sit and watch a Greg Maddox pitch. Yeah. To me, I consider him the greatest by far. I mean, he couldn't if he was ten feet away from a window and threw his best fastball. He couldn't break that thing. <laughs> this guy was a brain. A brain surgeon. Yeah. He was the most amazing pitcher I ever saw. Yeah, and, just, and, just, uh, just yeah. artistry. Yeah, you don't see that artistry anymore. You're right. Yeah. Right, right. Well, Sam McDowell, uh, again, one more time, the name of the book is The Saga of Sudden Sam and uh, published by Rowan uh, Publishing. And uh, God bless you, Sam, for what you've been doing uh, and uh, continue to do. I know you're kind of semi-retired, but you're always still helping people in, here in the villages not too far from us. But hopefully we can talk to you again. But thanks for being with us tonight. You're quite welcome. Thank you very much for having me.